0: Hello and welcome to the Radical Reformers podcast. I'm Andrew Laird. This podcast is for people who want to understand what it really takes to make a positive impact in public services. It features leaders from councils, the NHS, central government, charities and social enterprises, as well as think tanks and social investors. This is about policy and the implementation of policy and the grit and determination it takes to, to run successful public services. It's not about politics. Politics does not feature at all and the discussions are all the better for it. It's also about the stories and personal journeys of the leaders I speak to, the challenges they faced and the lessons they've learned. Running and reforming public services is incredibly difficult and I'm very grateful to these inspiring leaders for taking the time to share with others. So, before we get into it, I just want to take a second to thank my friends and colleagues at Mutual Ventures for supporting me to do this podcast. My day job at Mutual Ventures is about supporting public services to be better, more sustainable, and more connected to communities. This means working with central government departments to help them build bridges between policy development and local implementation. It means working with councils to help them plan for the future. And it also means working with NHS trusts to help them find their place in the new health and care system. So I hope you enjoy this podcast and that you get as much from it as I have. And don't forget to subscribe on the website or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter to make sure that you never miss a future episode. And you might even want to go back and listen to some of the older ones. This episode is with Jessica Studdard, the Deputy Chief Executive of New Local. In my view, the preeminent local government think tank. I've really been looking forward to this one. We cover a huge range of issues, including the relationship between central and local government and how that's changed over COVID and what's happening right now. Was that a catalyst moment or is it back to business as usual? We discuss what local growth means and how important it is not just to devolve key areas such as skills to local areas, But to also ensure the right package of powers are devolved so things can be joined up health and care is a big issue at the moment and jessica and i get into some detail on where responsibility for health in its broadest sense should lie and spoiler alert it's not with hospitals jessica has very interesting and valid views on local government structures and how these must be secondary to culture and behaviors and finally we talk about the benefits of what Jessica calls a zigzag career. I'm a big believer in the value of getting experience in different arenas, and Jessica has certainly done that. So let's hear from Jessica. Jessica, welcome on to the Radical Reformers podcast.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: So I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while now, and we've got lots of stuff to cover. But before we get into all that, it'd be great if you could just tell people a little bit about who you are.
1: Sure. So I am the deputy chief executive of New Local. We're an organisation um, that is a we're a peer learning network, um, mostly for local government and partners, and we're a think tank with a mission to drive and unlock community power. And so that's my that's what I've been doing for a few years now, and it's kind of my passion, I guess. At heart, I'm a bit of a kind of politics and policy geek, and I've always had a bit of a Passion for social justice and um but i did start off my career at the fabian society, so I think I've probably traveled quite a long way from being a sort of an unthinking centralized kind of mindset of of how we do <laughs> how we do reform to to now being a bit more of a a, a devolutionary and a, a localist reformer thinking much fantastic. more about communities
0: fantastic i I think it's really important that people are allowed to go on journeys as well because you see quite a lot, particularly with uh, politicians, if they change their mind about something, they're they're pilloried for it. But I think it's great to have gone on a journey, and um, yours has certainly been a really interesting one. Um, people who are interested in, in councils will know you, and you are a, a very well-respected commentator on local government issues, and we're recording this a couple of weeks after the autumn statement. And... I, I guess we've had some time to reflect on the content of that, so what did you think about it in terms of the impact on local government?
1: Oh well it was obviously it was a it was an autumn awesome statement that sort of needed to serve a a purpose of of closing down a, a crazy few months in politics um and so obviously it kind of it kind of did that um but it created a lot more kind of problems in the in the long term I think and I've probably been around far too many fiscal events Um, but at this stage in my in my career to be completely optimistic about things I do try to see the positives but you know it felt like after the pandemic actually it really felt like having gone through a kind of decade of austerity that there was a bit more of a mature relationship between central and local government with local government having done what it what it did stepped up um really really worked with communities and 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 played a massive enormous role in the in the pandemic response. It felt like central government was a bit more wise to the funding challenges and the councils had been kind of reimbursed for the upfront costs and there was a bit more recognition um of of the value of um local services and the and the value of of, of resourcing that after after a year of after a decade of austerity. It felt like, though, that it was a bit of a return to kind of business as usual for the last decade, this autumn statement, because it, it felt like there were too many decisions kicked into the long grass. It felt like we are looking at a government that's increasingly going to be focused just on the short term, just on 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 saving face and um, uh, in, it running up into, into an election. And the, given that the bulk of the kind of fiscal um compromise is going to have to happen after um a general election in 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 the next parliament it feels like that's a really uncertain uncertain and short termist platform yeah. for local government moving forward um and and we there's just so many so many um devils in details that you get from these things so of course there was a the kind of big set piece that they've propped up social care um for for the next two years um but but really there's Kind of recycled money, um, reforms delayed that were never funded properly in the first place, and um, a huge pressure on council tax. And yeah. yeah, so the money, the money that's apparently there is is not really there or only there if councils take the decision to hike up council tax for their residents which is obviously really tough in in um in in the times we're in with the cost of living crisis so it feels like it we're back to the kind of game of devolving the blame um devolving the hard decisions pretending that you're funding uh you know use, using the complexity of local government finance to to pretend that you're funding it sufficiently um but actually so raising public expectations actually that these problems have been solved um, but fundamentally not taking the difficult decisions and so yet again social care funding properly is 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 delayed um, because national governments yeah. seem incapable of making those hard decisions.
0: Yeah I, I think that's a really interesting uh, perspective of yours there about how during the pandemic central government seemed very happy to have local government as a partner to do a lot of the heavy lifting as you say but now that we're edging back towards business as usual it's the same old same old and actually local government budgets are among the first to be squeezed
1: exactly and i think coming into the into the pandemic um if there was potentially more recognition that entering a massive shock like that and a massive kind of external crisis like that entering that from a point of fragility across the public sector um should never have been a position that we want to be in so the the you know there should have been more questions about the impacts of austerity on on the fabric of our communities and our ability to to respond and adapt but then of course you saw you know key workers um Absolutely, kind of the most valued, valued members of society, um, and local, um, government, the, the role of public health in particular coming to the fore, um, to really respond to the impact of the pandemic, which of course yeah. was different in different areas. So, so that local response was absolutely key. Um, and, and, and it felt like there could then be the start of a different dynamic where local government was. Its role was clear, its value was clear, its dynamic and interface with central government was, was kind of respected and understood. But yeah, it just, it just feels like we're back in, in that kind of, um, austerity territory of not just less funding and squeezed funding, but, but also that kind of trying to pass the buck for responsibility. Yeah.
0: Yeah, no, I I completely agree. And I want to come back to local empowerment, local public services later. But first of all, I want to talk about this whole concept of growth. Um There's been a lot of talk about oh, growth, 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 but uh, an appreciation that it's a pretty meaningless word for a lot of people. So my question is, what should growth mean? Because I think in the context of local councils, Local councils, particularly district councils, have been have been sort of forced into the forefront of taking responsibility for local growth. And it, it's in some ways it's it's a new responsibility for them. Um, and I was just wondering what you think growth should mean, particularly local economic growth.
1: I mean, I think. We've obviously had this kind of really like stark kind of national debate recently about the the merits of uh, supply side reforms um, and, you know, the pace and uh, ferocity of supply side reforms. It feels like the background to a lot of the national debate is that growth is somehow needs to be unleashed and um, the barriers need to be removed, whether they're trade barriers or uh, taxation. um, But it always feels like it's done on a national level. So any any national growth strategy recently, uh, whether that's back in the days of an industrial strategy or um, levelling up um, um, plans, the 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 background kind of concept is that growth is something that national government needs to do to local areas or national government needs to do growth somehow um, and it's something that 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 primarily focuses on nas- focuses on national levers and as a consequence of that you get the elements of growth kind of separated out into skills policy on one hand which is kind of national and then you have business investment which is in another box and you always have devolution mentioned. You always do have some recognition of regional inequalities, some recognition that our poor productivity growth manifests in London racing ahead the rest of the country, underperforming by international comparisons. But you never quite have that being the lifeblood of a strategy. So devolution is always a box to be ticked, a couple bits, bits more funding for those areas that will take governance reforms, um, but rather than thinking actually growth is something that needs to be nurtured locally, uh and the skills strategies need to be locally led because they need to be linked to growth areas and growth sectors locally to create skills pipeline so people are actually going to be matched with econ- emerging economic opportunities and infrastructure is actually going to kind of match what's needed with patterns of housing growth and development um yeah. and these things, things can't all be done a from the centre but b in these separate siloed boxes where you somehow detaching skills policy from sector growth um yeah. and it 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 drives me crazy actually because you do just <laughs> you know you always see these these Strategies coming from the centre, um, and, and different kind of voguish, um, uh, strap lines attached to them, but devolution, the, the local is still something that sort of sits in the d box or MHCLG, CLG, whatever it's called. It's not fundamentally something that we, we do growth by understanding different areas have different barriers that- and opportunities and they need the tools to address those.
0: Yeah, I I think you're exactly right. And some of the most fulfilling work I did this year was supporting local councils to develop levelling up plans, you know, doing a theory of change with all the key people thinking, right, okay, what are we trying to achieve here? What might we bid for? And it was it was really exciting and it got everybody really enthused. And it feels like that was an actual considered policy choice under under Boris Johnson, let's not talk too much about him. But then it was completely abandoned under Liz Truss, and now under Rishi Sunak, it feels like it's sort of reluctantly returned to just to you know make good on that promise, if, if you like. But a lot of the stuff in the Autumn Statement, as you say, was back to was back to kind of top down, central government driven stuff.
1: Yeah, and it's still even though there was a Leveling Up you know paper and strategy and bill currently going through Parliament. the the fundamental kind of theory of change is that local areas can bid for particular funding pots in a competitive way against each other and nowhere near everyone's going to get any funding Um, and it's all completely untransparent and there's an enormous amount of work needs to be put into developing these plans, enormous amount of capacity and expenditure up front with no certainty. So the again this this is kind of what i mean by the 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 approach being growth is something that's done to local areas um and the the the, the dynamic of the relationship i think is extremely unhealthy actually yeah. what local you know no one knows better than people that live in the place how how they need to evolve and how you know what, what plans would have the biggest impact and how they can best align a whole series of different priorities so there's no real substitute for Long-term devolved investment that is absolutely what's needed to nurture growth over the, over the medium and into the long-term. And, um, a, a, you know, a devolved basis for doing so. It, yeah. It's increasingly, the, the, almost the more failure you get, the, more, the, the less growth we get, the more it seems to be centralized. And recently I've read things about, you know, Rishi Sunak's going to drive it personally from number 10. It's not even, it's going to be taken away from the treasury. And so you get the greater the failure, the more the kind of centralised, personalised management of these things. And it's ridiculous. Um, um, We we just need to kind of reconceive it. And this is a particular discussion I think we have in this country because we are uniquely centralised. And if you compare us to other kind of comparable um, European um, countries, um, we are both more unequal and have weaker productivity. Um but somehow we separate those things out and don 't think ah maybe maybe if we if we gave powers locally to drive growth, we would somehow become
0: yeah
1: less, less unequal um yes. and 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 drive productivity to that and to you know to back to your point about what does growth mean? Growth has to mean something for local people it has to mean opportunity for for local people um fundamentally they 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 should not just perceive it, but they should they should feel it. So so local growth has to create that opportunity.
0: Yeah, well let's let's dig into that um, concept of local empowerment and and devolving power. So I'm I'm a big believer, in, and I know you are, that in local empowerment, and that if you want to support local areas, local businesses, local economies, you have to support the people and the communities locally as well there's been there's been a number of interesting policy interventions around this uh there there was quite an interesting essay from a group of conservative mps this is back in the liz trust era so it's it's pretty much forgotten about now but it was called social capitalism and there there's clearly that group of one nation conservatives who really believe in the importance of supporting communities then also on the labor side there's been some really interesting thinking as well, not least Lisa Nandi's new book, um, All In, which talks a lot about, um, the need to give power to communities. And you obviously coming from new, new local, that's a huge focus of yours. And there's a lot of fantastic resources on your, your website there. So I just wanted to give you a chance to talk in a bit more detail as to how you think it should be.
1: Yeah, so I guess one of the things that um, I find kind of warming and heartening about about politics these days, because there's not there's not always lots to to find, um, is this this kind of clear evidence that the the concept of community power is really beginning to influence thinking in in both parties. Um, and it, I mean, you know, it 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 something that we've been talking about for a few years since we published a report, The Community Paradigm, which was really just thinking mostly about public services and how they they behave in a kind of statist way um, that seeks to kind of do to people versus um, a kind of marketised way increasingly, which is much more transactional relationship um, with people. Um, For us, community power is always something that innately exists in communities and public services can kind of bypass it, or they can work with it, support it, nurture it and in the long term, you know, increase community capacity and um from the point of view of communities themselves, they have more say over the direction of public services and the support they they would would need to live fulfilling lives. It's I think it's a brilliant concept. It really speaks to some of the big challenges of our times so though, where, you know, in the post Brexit world people voted who voted for brexit um taking back control was a was a kind of compelling mantra um there's lots of evidence people feel alienated from political processes or alienated from the system and they, they they're not happy with kind of distant decision making so i think at its core it really it really speaks to a different way of working with people giving people an absolutely strong sense of um, efficacy and power over the system and over, over over public investment and and how they're supported to live good lives. So it's it's fascinating to see different parts of the different parties kind of talking about it more. I would say that there's elements of community power how how we've conceived of it, and certainly others others have different perspectives. There's elements that are stronger in each party. So the conservatives are very good at having a, um, very relaxed about giving lots of power to communities, very silent on the role of the state. They don't really have a kind of theory of the state other than that there should be less yeah. of it and we should pay fewer taxes. Yeah. Um, whereas Labour naturally have a stronger, um, approach to the state and are naturally a bit more sceptical of just giving lots of power to communities because they um, have big kind of macro ambitions around social justice and inequality. And I think what's beginning to happen in Labour, which is really interesting, is there's beginning to be greater recognition that you can't tackle inequality fundamentally in a one size fits all way because it manifests differently in different areas different communities feel marginalized and deprived and or voiceless um vis-a-vis the system um and so actually if you're going to practically take on um inequality and you're going to practically understand how you can improve the lives of communities that are most deprived um actually it's not just about kind of Income redistribution, which is, which has been a big focus for Labour historically, but it's also about redistribution of power and voice and giving voice to people so that they have more say over, over the system and, 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 and build a sense of agency over their lives. So I think there's some really interesting discussions going on in Labour at the moment that, um, that, that, that's building a, a much more, um, kind of nuanced approach to, to how the state should intervene and how it must in the 2020s to tackle complex demand challenges i guess my one challenge to labour is always it's really easy in opposition uh to argue for devolution of power it's much harder to sustain that once you're in power <laughs> once 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 you have power um it's it's the harder job to to give it away um so it will be interesting to see how labour progresses that agenda but i think it's a really i think almost The last 10 years of austerity, we've, we've had a very uh, simplistic discussion about public services. It's just been about whether you invest in them or cut them. And actually, there's a, there's a much more interesting um, discussion to be had about how they can be reformed, um, which is absolutely the discussion that's going on in, in public services um across the country, um people are at the forefront of, of thinking of new ways of practice, of um taking on kind of much more asset based uh ways of working with people, building much more relational um work with people. So in a way the kind of national system needs to needs to catch up, to, to have a, a, yeah. a much clearer approach to how you actually how you actually kind of incentivise that um and, and systematise that across the country.
0: That's extremely interesting. I think you, you've explained all that really well. I do share your, I do share your concern that it's easy to, well, it's easier to say things in opposition and then do them in government. I mean, my, just thinking back to any new new government coming in of any colour, it's really difficult to give power away because you have the media, particularly now, on your back the whole time. What are you doing? What are your hundred days? Plan And if you spend all that time giving power away, then where's the evidence that you're doing things? And it just it just feels like our politicians are caught in this tumble dryer where uh, there's just not enough time to do the sensible thing. It's about what gets you through the next five minutes. And I worry that serious devolution and serious community empowerment would take time. And does any government have that time anymore?
1: I mean there's a whole set of questions there about how Sorry, I mean, we, I <laughs> we have a yeah, absolutely we have a we have a centralized country and not just a centralized system of governance, but it's a sort of centralized kind of mindset of our the you know, the Westminster bubble, lots of lots of journalists or kind of commentators will think naturally, what can the government do? And uh, you, uh, and and that's the focus. And of course the media when things go wrong, the government gets blamed. That's why you end up getting kind of uh Prime Ministers seeking more and more power essentially um, in order to kind of respond to crises or being seen to be doing things. And the trouble is, um, the the old traditional levers of statecraft um, aren't attached to very much in reality. So governments have this real challenge of over promising and under delivering and feeding yeah. this sense of alienation that the system's not working. And somehow we've got to um, build a different way of conceptualizing how we how we're creating change and where accountability lies for things and we've sort of got this halfway house of devolution at the moment where we've got some places have got um mayors or some places have got devolution and even those places kind of vary between them what they've got there's no there's no kind of systemic uh, recognition and offer throughout the system that this will be done locally, this will be done nationally, and this is the interplay between them. And, um, it's very unhealthy. I think it really breeds a, a sense of frustration that promises, promises are made that politicians can't deliver. So I do think yeah. that when you're a national politician, um, ultimately you want to create change and build a legacy and no one individual is going to control everything. It, it you know, and, uh, it, pa- Leaders of organisations who are really at the forefront understand absolutely that their role is as enablers. Their role is um, to operate in a distributed way that empowers people within their organisations to be brilliant. And somehow I think, you know, UK uh, government has got to kind of catch up with the, the notion of leadership in in the complex age of the 2020s where we've had pandemics we've got big climate change challenges um um increasing in emergency we've got to have different types of leadership that um build autonomy resilience um adaptability in local areas it's you know we saw through the pandemic you can't just look to boris johnson or whoever's in the prime minister to tackle the pandemic that happens differently in different areas and 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 hit no, more deprived and communities they, in different in, ways and so we've got to somehow kind of understand that leadership needs to evolve in that way
0: yeah exactly and i mean that looking to Boris johnson or whoever was prime minister that that wasn't how the pandemic was actually dealt with it was dealt with on the ground um the the sort of change that you're talking about there it's it's potentially pretty radical although the the progress we've made on devolution has been very gradual but I mean would you think about this as a multi-parliament thing you it, know it, it it's not something which I don't think anybody's going to do in a big bang kind of way
1: I know I think it does need to be done in a big bang kind of way but okay um, well I'd like
0: it to be but I just yeah I, I don't know I see it happening
1: no, and of course, and that's that's kind of part of the problem. It's kind of incremental and, um you know, again, devolution isn't a principle. It's kind of a, a policy that some places get it. And it's all largely at the moment uh, dependent on uh, particular governance requirements. It's largely about the relationship between sub-regional tiers and central government. It's largely not about communities. Communities, uh, you know, would probably by and large, not not necessarily feel any difference to their lives if they live in a devolved area versus not a devolved area. So I think that, for me, devolution shouldn't be just an isolated policy that comes out of D-luck, um that's kind of done behind closed doors. It should be something that's actually a kind of governance principle um, and it should be universal, it should be everywhere. And in terms of central government, it actually means quite a big reform of Whitehall and the way Whitehall does business because at the moment certain departments are allowed to opt into devolution and opt out of devolution and that doesn't make sense because we need to think about how public investment is rooted through, um, areas, um, how, uh, areas can make business cases for investment, um, across different public service institutions that currently have, um, accountability primarily to their parent department in um in Whitehall and somehow we need to shift towards more of a kind of place-based approach to creating policy not just for economic growth but for public service reform which is kind of the other side of the coin so so that places become fundamentally more more kind of sustainable but but equally are just able to tackle problems as they arise yes. um, and, ha- and have that kind of resilience. I think there's a lot of yeah. talk about we're living in an era of perma crises and um, um, we, we can probably expect more pandemics. We can probably expect a volatile global um, economic environment. And I think that policy needs to be much more focused on on building that resilience and building that, that um, ability to to adapt locally. Yeah. Um, yes. So it's more of a kind of a principle of how you get stuff done in in the current age, rather than just you know a small a small policy that creates a few mayors and 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 that's it. Um, I completely
0: agree. I I completely agree. Permit polycrisis is is my new favorite term. I'm combining the two. Yes, it's a
1: perma crisis. It's a polycrisis. It's it's, it's a permanent
0: state of polycrisis. You mentioned you mentioned public services quite correctly. There being the other side of the coin, and we're obviously very big fans of public services and the appreciators of the essential role they play in delivering a fair, healthy, prosperous society. I think some of that focus has been lost recently, particularly over the summer, and the first half of the autumn, with the focus all being on tax and economic growth. But when you reflect on it, we've actually lost nearly six years of public service reform. And public services, this is Brexit and, and pandemic, and public services have been allowed to fall out of sync with what people need. And we're finding that this is causing a real problem in that the only way to keep those public services that have fallen out of sync up and running is to put more money in and normally you would have had a constant state of reform which would have kept things more in line so i'd love to get your thoughts on that and maybe what we can do about it
1: yeah sure i mean i guess i guess the whole kind of terminology public service reform has kind of um become corrupted really i think because we go th- we've gone through this period of austerity where words like transformation um became kind of bywords for cuts and so we we're using too many we've used too many euphemisms now um that as soon as you talk about change in public services um that's that's quite difficult for a lot of people that work in public services because it's they're in defensive mode, they've had um they're working in environments where um constantly having to make savings, doing currently a job that maybe ten years ago three people would have done, um, incr under incredible pressure. Um and so kind of reform in the, in that context is it can be really hard and um, certainly we work at New Local with lots of um, really forward-thinking local authorities who are really thinking how do we how do we shift to adapt to the needs of our communities and work in new ways but so really I think that's where that's where the energy sort of needs to come from because there are brilliant examples of um, people thinking differently and actually nationally we need to think how do you how do you kind of incentivize that, and how do you create a framework where um, you're giving much more freedom and license to people working on the front line um, you're fostering a much more collaborative approach between different public services focused on health housing um, education skills um so that you're creating i hate the word ecosystem but i I find myself using it um all the time yeah. but you know just creating those kind of horizontal relationships in a place that are focused on building building strong um, strong systems um, using what public investment does exist in a way that really empowers people and crucially creating the space and creating the kind of freedom and the long termism to build healthy relationships with communities. So that they're able to influence the nature of, of public services and they're able to have meaningful say and and build in meaningful participatory um, yes. ways of working, um, which, you know, does happen, but is, is at, at the moment um and is brilliant that it does. But is it under constant pressure of being squeezed out? Um, yes. And so, you know, it. Obviously, the short term looks incredibly grim, um, fiscally, um, there's no sudden kind of money taps to turn on, but I do think we need to have a much more sophisticated conversation about the role of public investment, the interplay of what funding does go into different public services and how yeah. they can be much more aligned to work, work better. Um, yeah. and I think, you know, we, we see lots of the, you know, the consequences of pairing back social care. Has massive cost consequences on um, hospitals and pressure on pressure on the NHS. Um, so there's just got to be much more sophisticated um, ways of ways of collaborating and aligning that funding to to iron yeah. out those challenges.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned uh, you mentioned social care there, and you know I'd like to talk specifically about health and care. So New Local have produced fantastic work around community part. Health and Care, Community Part, NHS. And um I, I'm a big believer that the vast majority of the wider determinants of health or the social determinants of health have really nothing to do with core NHS services. They're about community services and council services and things like that. And um I just wanted to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about that work which you've you've been doing with colleagues at New local because it it has to be a big part of the answer.
1: Yeah, no, thank you. No, it's, it's it's a really interesting it's a really interesting kind of piece of work and area to explore. We published a report in the summer, communi- building a community powered NHS. I think that the the fundamental starting point is that the NHS is under massive demand pressures, but it's operating on a model that. Is kind of recognisable from when it was created in the in the immediate post-war era, um, when the health needs of the population were very different, um, and. Uh, obviously, we're aging um, as a society, but non-communicable diseases have become more prevalent. So um, people call it kind of lifestyle-related conditions, but but um, conditions that are related to our environment and and our, our health is poor. Health is increasingly linked to um, a, a poor environment, home um, health, um, or worklessness. Um, it, it is massively correlated with poor health outcomes. So a lot of the roots of health problems lie not within hospitals, um, but in communities. Um, But the challenge is that hospitals are are, are, um, facing massive demand pressures. And to an extent, that's been kind of Hidden by the p- pandemic, because of course we're talking about massive hospital waiting lists, but they were significant um, before the pandemic, um, and 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 it's a long term a long term challenge. And so I think what we were what we're kind of exploring at New Local is how the NHS can shift itself from being a, primarily a medicalised model um, that has a huge centre of gravity. Uh, In terms of attention and focus and um, spend in hospitals and create more of a sustainable preventative system, which over time shifts that centre of gravity from outside these kind of institutional medicalised provision. Towards communities. That doesn't mean that you stop having hospitals, but it means that they're able to focus on when we actually do get ill and really do need uh, medical attention. But that communities themselves um, have much more um, funding resource capacity to, to support these wider social determinants of health outcomes. And there's some brilliant work being done. There are, br- there are loads of really interesting GPs, for example, who are thinking... Differently, about people coming into their um surgeries who are actually you know are presenting with a certain condition, but actually what's at the root of that is isolation or loneliness or um things that could be solved in different ways if 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 community support existed and and they're seeing their role as 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 kind of building that community support or yeah. um thinking about it and investing it rather than just treating people at the point of presentation and sending them off back to the the homes or the communities that are causing that illness in the first place so there's just so much scope to think differently and what I would say is the integrated care system reforms that have taken place have shifted in theory the system towards a more place-based approach but of course there's just this whole set of Cost and political pressures um, that are making it very hard to think think anything other than short term, day to day firefighting when it comes to the NHS. But um, yeah. the the roots are there for a different way of of, of thinking about these things, and certainly a different relationship between local government and and health.
0: It is, it is. I mean, you know, good luck to any politician going into an election making this argument. But I think there is an argument that at least a logical one that the NHS could be de-scoped in terms of what it what it actually does and a lot more power a lot more resource given to communities to to councils but I just don't see how how that works within an electoral cycle and the way we are at the minute
1: yeah and I mean look the the term postcode lottery um has a big kind of cachet so that's always what's what's put up as a barrier to why you would have a more localized approach particularly to something like the NHS which is national and which you know uh, is is a real is a kind of sacred national institution um, and that's, that's hardwired into into all of us um, but for me the biggest postcode lottery is the lottery of life chances and the fact that you can live in a particular part of the country um, and expect to live 10 years less than somebody who lives in a in a much wealthier part of the country and 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 when you look at the gap in healthy life expectancy it's even worse it's about 20 years between the most deprived and the least deprived areas of the country so for me the, the only postcode lottery that that winds me up <laughs> that gets me passionate is is the fact that people can literally expect to die earlier if they live in a more deprived community and so that's what i would love politicians to try and kind of articulate and get people angry about because that's what needs to be the underpinning driver for how you then do reform a health system so that it's more responsive to communities um and and uh, works with those social determinants to 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 reduce those health inequalities
0: well i very much hope that we will get to the point in the near future where there is the space for our leaders to have those discussions and for it not just to be about immediate pressures, clearing backlogs and things like that, because I'm completely with you. Um, I, I want to move on just briefly now just to talk about local government and how it's organised. So, a- aside from devolution deals, there is quite a lot of activity, um, especially within the district councils, within counties, on the best way to arrange themselves. To be more sustainable and potentially more future proof so an example of that is we're supporting a couple of district councils within a county to help them think about a strategic partnership and that's being driven from a number of angles one is about uh being stronger as a as a bigger geographical area with with more resource but it's also actually about protecting themselves from the future any local government reorganization that might come along if they're already in partnership they might be in a stronger position and that's definitely in people's minds as well and I was just really interested to to hear what your view on the best structure of local government is because it's a real patchwork at the minute
1: it is, and to be honest, it's, it's a question that I've sort of been in far too many conversations where the issue of um, local government reorganisation comes up, and an hour later it's still going on. I think it's one of those. One of those <laughs> we don't have
0: we don't have that much time, so yeah. Yeah, I've lost yeah. I've
1: lost too many hours of my life yeah. um, already. Look, it's one of those things that almost everyone agrees that local government structures are not not as you would kind of create them if you were starting from scratch, but. But equally, um, anyone feels that reform should be to the level that they're, that they're currently operating in. So it's really hard, um, particularly obviously two-tier areas where there is a case for scale. Um, particularly for people facing services and there's a the case for the the ultra local kind of neighbourhood focus which is is you know is not the challenge in um in city area or urban areas where um there's population density that that creates both scale and um and locality in different ways so look it's really hard but i do i do think that it speaks to this wider problem with how we conceptualize reform which tends to focus on structural reorganisation as a panacea um, at the expense of things like culture, behaviours within those structures, the ability of organisations to look beyond their institutional boundaries and work with communities, um, and the, the incentives that we have within our system um for for collaboration, so there will always be different institutions. local government is having to um collaborate increasingly with with health partners local government's brilliant at colla- collaborating with a whole range of place partners so I think that sometimes it's easy to talk about structural reorganization because it 's something that you can very visibly see you can see that there's been change because a new a new thing has been created um but for me it doesn't work if the same behaviors have just transferred to a different organization actually the 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 key challenge and and it it, you can't see it so it's much harder to a argue for it and b uh claim that it's been done and from a politician's point of view it's harder to take the credit for it um but actually, it's that kind of culture change within organizations which I think is so fascinating. It's that different way of giving permission to your workforce to work differently with communities um so for me any any discussion about structures can't just begin and end with structures we we lose sight of purpose um and and so that's always been something that then focuses my mind when I'm talking about local government because we need to be clear about the purpose and um and and form follows
0: function yeah. uh, form certainly does follow function i think you have made a really good point there that people can obsess about structures because that feels like something you can control but actually the important thing as you say are the behaviors and the culture within organizations so whatever i mean i guess what you're kind of saying is in a particular area whatever structure will best support achieving that achieving those behaviors and that culture fine it's not necessarily one size fits all
1: and look it would be remiss of me not to mention funding (laughs) because clearly that ends up happening as well there ends up being a kind of a a motivation to to reform based on based on kind of cost savings which is obviously a particular driver but but it, it Is that at the expense of value or what does value look like? And obviously, you know, central government at some stage has got to get to a stage where we are thinking differently about resourcing local tiers so that you can avoid having kind of distracted uh conversations about reorganization or, or whatever um if if the purpose is simply cost saving um yeah. because it's yeah. not it's not it's not okay to create that level of fragility within within our local tier of governance so yeah that's that's a big yeah. a big background but absolutely the the behaviors and the cultures within organizations rather than rather than just to focus on structure I think is key
0: I entirely agree. So Jessica, we're almost out of time. We've got one final question for you and this is something I ask everybody. So what bit of advice would you give to someone working in the public sector or in a think tank or a charity or social enterprise who wants to make an impact in the way that I certainly think you have?
1: Oh, do you know what? This is a really hard question because I don't I, I don't I don't I feel very much on on a journey myself and I guess I would just say your career and your kind of your your role kind of does evolve and it's i never want to i would i would always say just never stop learning or never stop being curious and you might find yourself going in in strange directions or um um directions that you didn't foresee um but there's just so much there's so much interesting um curiosity and impact and passion that's being driven locally so for me I've always just seen my role. I'm, I'm not a doer in that sense. I've never actually worked within a council. I've never. I've always worked in kind of strategic roles, and I just, I guess, I feel I've, hope I've found a role for myself, talking about it, trying to advocate for it, and trying to see how that could work on a national scale and how you might incentivise more of it rather than just have it be isolated pockets of individual pioneering practice. So just find your niche but but have fun doing it and you know if if, if I, I i've been lucky enough to have a um a career where i've always loved what i do and so if you don't love what you do just follow follow your heart and i think that that's that's just the best the, the only advice you could ever ever give someone who i think that i think, really
0: that, I think to, that's fantastic I think I advice and i think in there what you're saying is um, yes, of course, find what you love doing, but actually don't be afraid to move organizations to, to look at your interest, uh, your subject of interest from different angles that might feel like a sideways move at times. But actually, one of the things I keep saying on this, on this podcast is that the best, particularly the best public servants that I meet are ones who have been prepared to shift themselves out of their comfort zone into different arenas so people who've spent some time at local government um in the NHS in central government in think tanks even if you find a person who's done a whole range of those things they tend to be the highest performers and the people who really get it so i think what you're saying partly in there is yes have something you're really passionate about but don't be afraid to explore it from different angles and don't just stay where you're comfortable
1: well, you put it brilliantly, yeah. Maybe I don't know whether that I think that's what you were <laughs> Let's saying. Say I'm trying to say, no, absolutely. That's what I I heard. Think I've worked I've worked in um think tanks, I've worked in the public sector institution I um and I've worked in the um in the charity sector actually. I think it's really important to get that that different those different perspectives. Um, and I think it absolutely builds your sense of kind of understanding different organisations and the ability to collaborate and and have kind of human empathy for for different yeah. different perspectives. Um, so, yeah, I think I think that kind of zigzag career, I think, is really exciting. It right. kind of means you never quite know what's happening next. But I think I also think that's quite exciting.
0: Well, I mean, I suppose in this day and age, we never know what's happening next. So, <laughs> yeah (laughs) Yeah. jessica thank you so much for your time
1: ah pleasure thank you so much for having me
0: there's an absolute ton of things that we could unpick here and i could go on all day but i'll try and be quite precise i thought jessica's point about the past two years um, has involved a very different relationship between central and Local, where central government was prepared to really involve local government in its response to the pandemic because it had to really because local government was best placed to do it. Now, the risk, as Jessica highlights, is that as we move back to business as usual, that central government reverts to type and starts to try and control things centrally again. And that would be a huge shame and would undo A lot of the progress in terms of in terms of local empowerment that we've seen over the past couple of years. I really enjoyed the part of the conversation about growth and the fact that central government has traditionally seen it as its role alone to encourage growth but actually what we're starting to see now I think through the leveling up process is that um, there's an acceptance that growth means slightly different things in different areas and the needs of local areas to encourage growth and to enable citizens to participate in that growth will be different in different areas and that's where the part of our conversation about proper devolution I think is really important and the fact that not only is it about devolving responsibility and power and funding to local areas but it's also about making sure that the right competencies are involved in that so that a place can provide a joined up approach to what growth means for that particular area. And it's not a national one size fits all solution. But of course, the flip side of the economic growth coin is having a healthy population that is economically active. And this is where councils really have a role to play. And the part of the conversation where Jessica and I talked about where responsibility for the wider social determinants of health should sit, and that being councils rather than in the formal NHS, I think is really important. And as we discussed, the current reforms do start to put the framework in place for that, but this is as much about behavioural change and cultural change as it is about structures, and that was a real theme that ran through our entire discussion today. And finally, a topic that will be familiar to regular listeners of the podcast is that idea of having a, a varied career or a zigzag career, as Jessica called it. It's absolutely fine and really important to have a focus, have an interest in, in Jessica's case, that's on communities and local government. but. Take the time and don't be afraid to move and explore that interest from different angles, be that through think tanks, through local government, central government. I think that just adds to a person's deep understanding of a topic and it is well worth doing, even if at the time it might feel like a sideways move when if you stayed where you are, you might get to move up a couple of notches. Actually, building that broad base of experience can only help you to reach The heights that you're capable of reaching later in your career. So that's everything for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. And don't forget to follow us on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, on Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you very much.